All right, welcome to Your Church Friends Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Murdoch. And we're going to be going through kind of a long thing here with the, the Sermon on the Mount and picking apart each section and each part of it and diving into it and getting a better understanding of it. But before we do that, give us some historical background to the Sermon on the Mount, because that's kind of your thing and not so much my thing is the history of stuff. Well, I know you're saying a long thing, and that's why I raised my hand real quick, because we're not doing the whole long thing right now. We're not going through the whole Sermon on the Mount. I think you're just meaning this. we're doing like a series on it. So Unless we want to have like a 17-hour podcast. I mean, I think it's unheard of and never done before, but we could try. How or we this? could just cut it down to this episode. When people find this later, they can just binge it, and then it'll be a 17-hour podcast. That, that makes sense. So yeah, getting into the history, the Sermon of the Mount, we're in the book of Matthew chapter 5, but the Sermon on the Mount, if you just jump into it, it's kind of like you just get a nice meal set before you and you can eat it and it tastes good. Um, But it reminds me, there's a documentary on Netflix, it's called Hero Dreams of Sushi, and he's basically top sushi chef. And when he's talking about somebody who he admires, he's talking about the guy's palate and just how much taste he can taste, how many different tastes, and that that makes him so much better of a chef. So with this, it's kind of like you can get into the Beatitude and just know it tastes good, but it becomes so much more full when you have the background to it and you can discern the flavors in it and it just makes it that much better. So really looking at Matthew and getting into the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, Matthew, from the beginning, is kind of setting Jesus up as the new Moses. So Matthew, he's writing like a Jewish uh, audience, and Moses was the guy who came, and he set up the first covenant. So Jesus is coming, and he's setting up the second covenant. And you see it from the birth. So like when Jesus is young, Herod wants to kill all the kids. When Moses was young, Pharaoh was killing all the kids. So Jesus and his family go and escape into Egypt, and Moses spends time in Egypt And there's this whole thing, they spend time out in the wilderness, right before getting the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus out in the wilderness, he fasts for 40 days, Moses goes out and fasts for 40 days. So Matthew, and this stuff isn't made up, it's not like Matthew is just creating a narrative, this stuff actually happened, but Matthew is linking these things in the mind of a Jewish audience, you get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So when we get then into this section of the Sermon on the Mount, we kind of want to look at it. We say chapter five, but it wasn't written with chapters. So the way that they um, kind of set up scenes or sections uh, in chapter four, in verse, here we are, 23, says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then when you get to, it's a... Uh, In chapter 9, it kind of repeats that thing again. So that's like the bookends to this section. And what this section is, is chapters 5 through 7 are him teaching the kingdom. So that's the Sermon on the Mount we're getting into. And then chapters 8 and 9 is the going out and healing people. So it's kind of like he's telling you, hey, here's what's coming up. And then at the end he goes, and that's just what we did. And then chapters 10 and onward get into his disciples doing those things. So... That's kind of this setup, and that's important to know because when we're getting into what Jesus is saying and how he's presenting it, because we're Sermon on the Mount is the teaching portion, and he's teaching on the kingdom, it's important to have that background that they are expecting a new Moses figure. They are expecting a better covenant to come, but the way that they're expecting that to look versus how Jesus actually teaches it it just completely flips it. And I think that when we get into studying it, it's going to flip us. Um, But with all that, even in the the history of all that, um, when people think about Jesus uh, and we look at, like we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, they always think like Jesus taught love and it was this kind of friendly kind of Jesus, right? Like the lamb. But what he's saying here is pretty revolutionary, right? Like it's not, he's coming totally against the Pharisees like you said, being the new Moses coming in and kind of the new covenant teaching a different kind of righteousness, something that isn't external or can be measured by what you do, but more about an internal thing. Well, it's both like, yeah, dude, Jesus, (laughs) Jesus is hardcore when he comes, when he comes out, he's definitely a peaceful guy, but he sticks up for what he knows to be right. And when he gets into it, it's this more 
this righteousness that he's teaching comes from that inside. Mm-hmm. It results in the external actions, but he kind of talks about the Pharisees. It's kind of like they clean a cup on the outside, but the inside stays dirty. Jesus wants to get in and clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside and the inside are clean. So he's more concerned about, let's make you right on the inside, because then your your actions will be good. You're not going to be like a hypocritical person that you're saying or doing all of these things, but really you just suck on the inside. <laughs> But I know we haven't got into it, but that history is interesting. But to really understand what we're getting into with these verses, it keeps using this word blessed. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of break down blessed so that we can understand what's going on there when we get into it? Yeah, a lot of this, um, when we look at the word blessed, a lot of people have translated into like the simplest term of just happy. So happy is the person who is this or happy are those who do that. Uh, but when I really started studying it, the last few hours, 24 hours, it was talking about like this divine joy or this perfect happiness. And really, it wasn't this idea that the term blessed wasn't really used for humans, but only for like gods and dead people. And really what it's implying is this inner satisfaction and this inner sufficiency that doesn't depend on outward circumstances for any type of happiness. So when you talk about someone who's blessed, they're not they're blessed internally. There's this happiness that's inside of them and it doesn't depend on what happens around them or to them or what circumstances they are going through. It's just, it's all about what's going on inside. And the cool part is when Jesus starts this off, like you said, the Sermon on the Mount, here's his first kind of public message. He starts off with this term, blessed are. And the moment everyone in the crowd and audience heard this, their head turned. Because, again, they're not used to that term being used for people. And Jesus is basically conveying to them, this is what God has to offer to you guys, is blessed, perfect happiness that isn't dependent on what you're going through or where you're at. And this is what we have, and this is what's there to offer to you if you trust him. I like that because he's giving you something that the world and circumstances can't take away. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not like, I'll fix your circumstances, but then if something changes those, like you're in the same boat. You're going, no, I'm going to give you something from the inside that's not dependent on that. It's fully dependent on him, and therefore, no, no one can take it away. So then he gets right into it, and we'll look at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When I looked at to poor in spirit, I always, a lot of these words that he uses and what we've translated over, they made me question what the word actually means. So when I was like, what's poor in spirit mean? What does that mean? Is it this sense of false humility that I have or of being like, oh, I'm just a humble person who's poor in spirit. But when I looked at it, it's uh, it's honesty with ourselves. So when you're poor in spirit, you know yourself, you accept yourself, and you're taking a good look at yourself in comparison to God. And you understand who you are in that comparison. Yeah, and I think that that's, it's a difficult thing uh, to realize that that's where we are on the inside is that nobody wants to look at themselves as poor or poor in spirit. You know, it's like, I know I'm, I'm okay. I can fix this. I can be okay. And technical difficulties. Murdoch's mic is almost about to fall off the table. He attached it to probably horrible noises on the, (laughs) like how you just have the simple setup and it doesn't break. Short people have uh, less problems. I'm sure that none of that's going to go into the podcast. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm going to leave all of this part. I I find it to be great. Being poor in spirit, I feel like this should be still in there. So we're going to be poor for an audience because no one wants to listen to that. Anyways, I completely lost my train of thought, so I'm just going to pass it back over to you. Cool. Poor in spirit. That that really to me is just this good self-reflection of looking at myself internally. Like I said, it's just me looking at who I am in comparison to God. And my spirit is poor because without God, it's nothing. And when I realize that, then it becomes that that great follow-up for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when I really recognize who I am in my need of God and trust God, because again, all this all these terms are coming into the idea of trusting God with these with being able to be blessed, then mine is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, I get you. Um it's interesting there because when we're talking about Jesus flipping things on its head, right? So he's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm pretty sure most people would think like, no, it's the super religious person who has Mm -hmm. all of the outward actions and who has the full persona of being built up into this pious person. Like 
theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus just comes to the, more to the marginalized. And he goes like, no, 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 you guys who just realize that you are screwed up and you're in need of God and just like where you're at and you need to be filled up and you need his presence, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So it's kind of really taking those those things and switching them around. I see too in Luke though, in Luke, like there's a somewhat parallel passage to this. And Luke just says, blessed are the poor. He doesn't say, are the poor in spirit? And a lot of people will try and look at, well, did Matthew try and like spiritualize the thing? Or is it truly just about being, you know, monetarily or economically poor? And I think that it's good to look at it in a both and type of situation, because Jesus really does come to the marginalized, the forgotten about, the, the oppressed and the outcast that he's basically also saying, hey, look, you guys don't have money and you're being oppressed and whatever that situation is for you. But I want you to know that God is seeing your heart and that you don't need that other stuff. The kingdom of heaven still belongs to you. So then he takes us to the next one, which is blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And again, mourning these terms and words, you think about sadness and I'm sad about what I'm going through in life. But this is mourning over my sin. So much that I despise it, that when I mourn, I'm looking at what I've done, who I am, and, and what I, all the mistakes I made. I see sin the way God sees it, and I want to correct it. I'm not trying to cover it up or defend my sin, but I see my sin, and it makes me so sad inside that I know I need something to replace that or get that out of my life. And really just treating sin the way God treats it. So when I know I, there's a problem inside of me that I can't just... It seems like I'm struggling with. If I really look at this thing, I can mourn over it and say like, well, God says I have to start removing that. So let me start taking that out of my life and get that sin gone. Yeah, I'm tracking with you. But what do you think about it also just being for those who mourn? I mean, life is hard and not all of the things that give you grief and make you mourn are your own doing. And I mean, just think about people who lose a kid or, you know, we're going through all this COVID stuff and people are losing jobs and like there's real stuff going on in the world that is reason to mourn. It's reason to be sad. And I think that also when you have God in your life and your heart is positioned towards him, you find comfort in him during those times as well. What do you think about that? I think it fits both ends, really, because the, the promise at the end of it hits both solutions, right? So when I mourn for my sin... I can go to God for forgiveness and I get comfort. When I'm mourning for the loss of a loved one or everything that's happening right now, I can go to God and find comfort in Him. So it is kind of like it does meet both ends because of that promise, that promise of comfort. And really, whether it's mourning for like my inability to be a good person or my inability to cope with the loss, comfort is what I'm looking for and comfort is what I need. And again, so revolutionary that Jesus is saying, Here's comfort for you when you're sad. Not to take it all out of context, but I just think about all of the ways that myself or others can try and find comfort in all kinds of things that aren't mm -hmm. God. And like just right out the gate, he's telling you, all right, cool. Stop trying to comfort yourself with these things that aren't going to satisfy. Mm -hmm. If you got to mourn, mourn over your sin or mourn over life situations, God can comfort you plus nothing. <laughs> like, it is God plus nothing equals ultimate comfort. Uh, the next one then, as we get through the first three and then we'll take a, a quick break, is blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. So on meek, and this was uh, my old pastor that kind of trained me up when I was a young pastor coming up. And he said, meek does not equal weak. And a lot of guys especially go, blessed are the, the meek. And a lot of these things, they make you go introspective, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus comes out the gate and he's talking about this blessed. And like you said, that's catching their ear because like, wait a minute, blessed, like what's up with that? And then he goes, are the poor in spirit, are those who mourn and are meek? And immediately going, well, if those are the people who are in, am I in? You're like, you know, it makes you question like, am I one of those people? And when you hear meek as a guy, you're like, well, I don't want to be weak. Like, I don't want to get walked all over and, or any of that. But I love um, how Pastor Bruce, he brought up um, the imagery that's coming from the original language is like a powerful stallion, like a horse, right? Full of power, can be a wild stallion, can't catch it, can't ride it, right? But the meekness is when it's broken and trained to be controlled with the bit in its mouth. So it's the same horse, it's the same power, but it's come under the control. So that's the meekness, is that, yeah, dude, you are 
fully you with all of the power and all of the ability to do all those things, but you're meek when you are able to submit and come under the control of God and to not just wiling out on everything or, you know, be against authority and have to do it your own way. The meekness kind of comes in the submitting. doesn't mean that you're weak, but that you know how to handle it. It's kind of the, for me in my simple brain, I just think meek means power under control. Yeah, it's a good summary. Keeps it like the simpleness in my head goes power under control is meek. It's not me being a weak person. It's not me being a doormat where people can step all over me. That doesn't mean I'm meek. It means that I have the power, but I can control it. And I don't do anything out of my own gain. I do it for God. And I think that a thing to consider on that point is that going through this, it is definitely Jesus fills this. His is the kingdom of God. He's comforted by God. He uh, inherits the earth in the utmost fashion. And so when you're thinking about meek, like Jesus was not a weak guy. Like right. he completely revolutionized the world. He did and said tough stuff. And he was also very gentle, though. So you can see what power under control looks like. Mm-hmm. Jesus was not a doormat by any means. Yet he knew how to submit, and we see how that plays out in his life. I always think of like the idea of power under control, and then we'll go to our break, um, is the transfiguration when he goes up to the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he transforms into whatever his true self, his light, and the light shining. He's all bright. They can't see it, see him at all, and then they're like blinded by it, and then he becomes back to the normal human. And that's like the idea of power under control, that that's who Jesus could have displayed himself. But he came and controlled that and put it in a man form so that people could see us through him. And that, to me, was always like, that's the true power of Jesus. It wasn't the like who he was. Well, I guess all his miracles and everything, yeah, and that, but that he could contain that power inside of a human being. Um, so that's power under control, being meek. All right, let's take our first break, and then we'll come back in a few seconds. Is your spirit poor because of your damaged hair? Are you mourning because of your split ends? Are you being persecuted because of your dry locks? Then rejoice and be glad and get ready to inherit the earth because comfort has come for your meek mane. The Bee Attitudes Beauty Product line proudly introduces the Peacemaker Shampoo and Conditioner. Your frizzies will thirst and hunger no longer as the patent secret Pure of Heart formula inside will bring your roots and ends to peace. So show mercy to your curls and buy the Peacemaker Shampoo and Conditioner at all big box retailers. Don't trust us? Then hear this amazing testimonial. My hair feels great. Awesome testimonial. The kingdom of Hairven can be yours with the Peacemaker Shampoo and Conditioner. Peacemaker isn't actually sold in stores or FDA approved. Do not use Peacemaker Shampoo and Conditioner if you are pregnant, nursing, have back pain, have a heart condition, enjoy having all your fingers or alive. Peacemaker has been known to cause hair loss, change of color to existing hair, skin irritation, dandruff, fingernail loss, growth of an extra toe, weight gain, and cat scratch fever. So you're kind of ending it off on that point about him up on the mountain and up on mountaintops, up in the high places is throughout the whole Bible, just like such a symbolic thing where things happen, interactions with God. And that was another drawback or throwback rather to Moses. Moses went up into the mountain to receive the law and then he was the lawgiver. And what we have on the Sermon on the Mount, it's a sermon on the mount, the mountain to now we have Jesus coming And he's on the mountain and he's giving the law and he's giving the teaching, which I think as we get into this, to really put ourselves in the position of student, right? He is teacher, we are student. So when we're reading these, uh, to really be looking at like learning how to live this. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, we are now getting into the next blessed, which is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. I just like that he uses things that you can very easily relate to. Like right now, I'm not that hungry. I'm a little bit thirsty. But I know what it feels like to be really hungry and really thirsty. And he goes, feel that, but towards righteousness. Mm. 
it, again, it makes you introspect and you look at yourself and go, do I really desire to have righteousness in my life or see it in the world the same kind of way that I want a burger? <laughs> like, you know, am I more concerned about getting dinner than I am about seeing the oppressed get help? You know, it really gives you something you can easily understand and then shows you something bigger with it. The, the terms to the hunger and thirst for righteousness, when I really kind of think about that, it's like you were saying, do I hunger and thirst for, and instead of righteousness, I'm just going to put a relationship with God. Do I hunger and thirst for that relationship with God? Is it something that I'm striving for that I know what it feels like when I'm hungry or seriously? Yeah, I could go for a cheeseburger right now. I love hamburgers. And because of the everything that's going on in the lockdown and the quarantine, I haven't had a good hamburger in about a week. And usually like I'm getting hamburgers more often than that you know that the drive-thrus are open everywhere i know but we like to stay in the house and we're cooking more inside but i know that feeling of wanting something that i desire it so much actually we got one last week and it was because i had told my wife justine that i just need a hamburger today i just need it so we went out and got hamburgers do i do the same thing for my relationship with god do i hunger and thirst for it and the term i like there too is uh, for they will be filled I know what being filled feels like. <laughs> I know when my stomach is happy and it just hit the right spot, what I ate, and I feel good. But then there's those feelings of like I've eaten too much and I feel like a beached whale and I'm laying there and it's pain and it hurts or I fall asleep because I've eaten way too much than I should have. And then there's the feeling of being empty. Like, ah, oh, I ate. Like if I ever go on diets and I do try to calorie count, then you portion control, right? So you eat a certain amount that's less than what you've normally eaten. And when you're done eating that, you're like, mm, I'm still hungry because I'm used to eating so much more. But that feeling of being filled is just that perfect amount. And that's kind of the blessing. You're going to be happy when you hunger and thirst for God because you'll have that right amount inside of you. I like how you brought up, though, that uh, hungering and thirsting for the relationship with God. Because even though I was saying, let's look at this as students, right? Let's learn from Jesus the way of life. All of these that he's laying out that we've read so far and that we'll continue to read isn't really like a, a directive. When he's talking about blessed are the poor, are those who mourn, are the meek, are those who hunger, he, it's like people groups. Mm -hmm. You know, he's saying like, look at these types of people. They are blessed. So it's not really like, well, you need to go out and be more poor in your spirit or you need to go out and mourn more. It's like the type of person who has the relationship with God looks like this. So I like that you brought that up because it's not as we're talking about these people are shouldn't be going like, oh man, like, how do I go be more meek? It's like <laughs> the meekness is a result of following these and the rest of the teachings of Jesus. Right. It becomes who you are and it flows from you, so to speak. Unless you have something there, I've got another thing to throw in. No, I'm good. That yeah. was all I had on uh, hunger and thirst. So it's also an interesting thing on blessed. Because if you're blessing one group of people, you're almost like inherently not blessing another group. And you could look at it in a neutral factor, just like, oh, well, they're not getting blessed and these people are for because they meet the parameters, right? Right. But then it also goes in biblical, when you're talking about blessings, there's also cursings. And generally, you're blessed if you have these qualities and you're cursed if you if there's an absence of those so like i was saying that there's the there's the parallel portion of this in luke chapter 6 uh in verse 25 he says woe to you who are full for you shall hunger and woe isn't like whoa dude like woe is like mm -hmm. that's a bad situation to be in like cursed are you if you're full because you're gonna be hungry luke doesn't talk about the righteousness in there but if you are full of your own righteousness, then you're going to constantly be hungry. Because if you have your own pride, you're trying to do it your way, you're trying to follow all of your own ways with stuff, it's like you are never actually satisfied in the way that you were talking about. It's kind of like Chinese food. It's delicious. You want it, you go and you do it, just kind of like when you have your way and you're going to do it your way. And then very shortly after, you're hungry again. But God's way will satisfy. Yeah, it's not just like, oh, if I'm not doing it, I'm not blessed. It's like, no, you're actually falling into the curse because you don't have the thing that God's looking for. And it's a really good uh, compare and contrast to the idea of like hunger and thirsting for God, searching for that to fill you. You're blessed. You're going to be happy. But when you're just so full of yourself, that's when you're just constantly hungry. Because the idea of being full of myself means that like it's almost like an ego, right? Like a pride thing. 
And for my pride and ego to always be satisfied, I'm longing for people to kind of fill that and fill that void. And it makes me hungry for it. Like, I am a person who I will fish. Like, we know those people, right? Fish for a compliment. I'm going to go to my wife and fish for a compliment. I'm like, hey, how do I look in this? Now I know how I look. I think I look good. But I want that compliment. So I fish for it. But I constantly do it with almost everything. And because I want that feeling to be filled. I'm never satisfied with it. I'm always hungry and hungry and hungry. So I really did like that. That was a cool way to look at the compare and contrast of the blessed. You're going to be happy, but cursed. Because it is a curse to always want to have that ego stroke. And it doesn't even need to be just ego. I mean, all kinds of stuff that you can fill yourself with. Possessions mm-hmm. or like, you know, whatever it is to try and fill that. But you're not hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness. Right. But it's also interesting because you had that fantastic thing about... um you know, God will fill you up and it's not dependent on your circumstances. Mm-hmm. And like, it comes from his internal spot. It's like, it's an interesting thing to know that and to say that. And I know that you believe that and that that's so apparent in aspects of your life. But then to also realize like, but sometimes I have a hunger for something else mm-hmm. and I know it doesn't satisfy. And like, I'm working through that. Right. And I've got stuff like that as well. Is it Jesus was the perfect one. He's teaching us. <laughs> and I'm a slow learner. I got to learn the lesson a couple times sometimes. But uh, yeah, definitely. I think for people listening, it's like, it's okay to be working on it. Right. Progress is what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Or what God's looking for. Yeah, not what we're looking for. Either. Well, no, I'm looking for it too. I want you to be progressing. <laughs> Don't go backwards. So the next one then is, uh, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. And for me, this is one that I think I struggle with more as a person. So it was hard for me to even like focus in on like, hey, what should I say or notes or anything like that? But really what it comes down to is uh, for me, it was just looking at merciful, the idea of showing forgiveness and compassion. And it's not really the forgiveness part that I struggle with. It's that compassion sometimes that I struggle with. So my son is crazy. He jumps all over the place. He runs all over the place. And I'm constantly telling him, stop doing this. Stop doing that. Don't jump around or lean back on the chair when the tables next to you you're gonna fall and hurt yourself he was in one of your video the five minutes with the church friends and yes. he was crawling all over you like yes. that's exactly what you're talking exactly about. exactly what i'm talking about so the other day he we hear him crying and i get up because i'm like okay he did something he hurt himself my daughter comes running through the hallway reed's crying and i'm like yeah thanks for that i know i could hear again no compassion right and i walk over there and i said what happened i fell because i was leaning on the chair and i was like okay we'll stop crying because <laughs> I'm not going to have compassion for you for doing something that I told you not to do. You knew you shouldn't do it and you did it and hurt yourself. So get up and finish dinner. And I think that's where I always struggle with this term of mercy because in merciful, it's because that compassion side of me really does lack sometimes for people who I tell over and over again, like, don't do this. And then here's the kicker. After I walk away, God then tells me, I tell you, don't do this over and over and over again. Yet I have compassion and I forgive you. And then I feel like a horrible father, a horrible person, and I just go in my room and cry. None of that. At least the last part isn't true. And I was actually going to bring that up because when it's saying here that blessed are the merciful for you will receive mercy, I think that it's from people as well as from God. And there's a thing that God can tell you he's merciful, but if you don't feel it and you don't believe it, you're not going to see that he is being merciful. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not merciful, like... If I don't have the compassion and when I look at people screwing up when they knew better yep, and I don't show compassion because like you should know better, then the first thought in my brain when I know better and I screw up is that God is looking at me the same way. So I think that when you don't show mercy on other people and I don't show mercy on other people, just the mindset and the heart condition of not having an abundance of love, we then view God that way towards us. Mm-hmm. And it can take a while for God to actually show you otherwise. <laughs> you can be pretty stubborn in the like, no, I'm stupid. I'm an idiot. God doesn't want to forgive and like all the stuff. But uh, he is merciful, mm-hmm. most definitely. Again, going back with all of the blessed are those, the, the promise that's made afterwards and that promise of mercy is so huge for us to really grasp and understand that when we are merciful to others, that mercy does come back. I really did like that point you made because... That's where I'm starting to work on that. Now that I know it's a struggle, I'm starting to work on that. Not saying that, again, the journey, the progress, right? I'm not there, so I can't tell anyone to 
get there. Are there things that I progress with all the time? Yeah, I mean, it's totally easier for me. I can look at myself and be like, oh, I'm really merciful compared to all of the other people who I see are struggling worse than I am. Like, I can think of a couple people and like, oh, the reason why you have so many problems with people is because of the way that you treat them. You're not showing them mercy. You're not acting in integrity with them. So therefore, you don't receive from other people. You know, it's like you're reaping what you're sowing. Yeah. And I can see that really easily with some people who I know just like, oh, dude, that's a perfect example of this. You're not showing mercy. And that's why when it comes down to stuff, it's like you just get smacked hard in life. And then I have to look at myself and go, yeah, what are you ignorant of, Murdoch? Because <laughs> you're definitely not perfect. So take a look. I think that it just triggered the idea in my head, too, while we were talking about it. The real struggle with it all is that maybe it's because there's no mercy that I give myself. There's no compassion for myself. So when I don't give myself compassion, I don't expect to give that to other people. But being merciful, I also have to be merciful to myself and understand that I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to make errors in life and that instead of running towards maybe my own feelings of making myself feel better, just run to God and say, hey, God, this is where I struggle at. Instead of looking to get mercy from anything, get mercy from him. Because once I receive his mercy, I really understand what mercy is. And then I can give mercy, compassion, and forgiveness to other people the right way. Yeah, which is what I'm saying. Like when you look at yourself and you realize like, oh, I need mercy. And when you feel the release of God showing you mercy, then when somebody else needs it, you're like, yeah, I get that. And I will give that to you. Yeah, you want to move on to the next one? Yeah, we probably should or else we're going to stay here longer than... Oh, it's because like, there's just so much more that I can say <laughs> and keep coming up with, but people can read the Bible for themselves. So we're just talking about these ones real quick. Yeah, verse 8 now we're into. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I put emphasis there because I feel like a lot of people go like, well, I, I don't see God. He goes, well, this is like a promise right here. Mm -hmm. If you're pure in heart, you will. Not to be like, well, you're not seeing him because you're not pure in heart. But I definitely feel like if you are pure in heart, then you will. I guess it's a hard term for me to really comprehend, the uh, pure of heart. And when I think about it, it just goes down to motives. What are my motives? How do I make decisions? Are my motives towards God? Or even when I'm trying to do something good, is there a hidden motive why I'm doing something? But when my motives are right, then my heart is pure. And so I'm pure of heart, and then I'll see God in what I'm doing. And that's kind of the thing to think about too, that Pure of heart really isn't essentially seeing God like, oh, here's God coming down. I can physically see him, but maybe it's he's leading me down the right path and I see where he's leading me and I'm following him. I just realized I'm nodding at you the whole time and people don't know how much I'm in agreement. Um, yeah, and interesting here too is like pure of heart versus moral perfection. Like I know that we all are like aiming towards just trying to be better people and more Christ-like and like really trying to get that and where we feel bad and guilty when we screw up. But like God is seeking for purity. Like you said, the motives of our heart and to be able like David, right? And he prays the King David from the Old Testament. He prays to God and he goes, search my heart, O God, and show me if there's anything hidden in there. Mm -hmm. And David is called a man after God's own heart. And it's like, he was not perfect. His life was filled with murder and with um, adultery and with war and with all kinds of stuff going on. But the position and the posturing of his heart that he just kept wanting to seek after God. And when there was a conviction and he was even asking God, show me what's in there because I don't want it to be there. Reveal it. And I'll, I'll kick it out. And it's really cool you brought up David and the idea of like, you know, the adultery. Because that instantly I thought Psalms 51, which he wrote after he got busted for his affair with Bathsheba. And in there, verse 10, he says, create in me a pure heart. And really going back to the idea of God, I need you to cleanse this. Get away all the motives that are wrong. Make my heart just want to seek after you because when it's pure, I know I'll see you. And that was really all I had for that. It just came to my head when you were talking. That's a good point. In First John, it talks about like we can confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse it. And for as much as I know what we do matters and when we sin, it does matter. And like it was mattered enough for Jesus to die for it. 
I know that God's heart is he wants us to come to him and get the forgiveness and come back into relationship because for as bad as it is that we did that, it's even worse when we don't come to him Mm -hmm. because he desires the relationship that he's like, I will give you the pure heart. (laughs) Like I will come back to you and you like, well, you need to come back to me because you're the one that left, right? Like I left. He's like, come back. We'll get this thing squared away. We'll reason it out together, right? I can feel guilty hearing this blessed are the pure in heart. I might feel like, ah, I might not be pure in heart. Like, well, the great thing being lifted up here is, well, then get one. Yeah, and really just check your motives. If what you want to do is to glorify God, then when you see him, your motives will be pure and they will lead you towards that. I thought, yeah, that's really cool. All right, let's take our next break and then come back and wrap up the last few verses. Oh, nothing. Just watching some videos on YouTube. That's cool. What are you watching? Our dad's on their YouTube channel. Our dads have a YouTube channel? Yes, they do. They also have a Facebook group page and an Instagram account. Wow. Really? What else do they have? They also have a Teespring account where they sell t-shirts. Where can I find this information? All the links can be found in the descriptions below. That's so awesome. What's the name of the channel again? It's your church friends. Get out of here, Reed! All right, we're back, and we're going to pick up on uh, verse 9, and it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, this is a pretty interesting one here, as we're getting into these blesseds and happies and everything, is the peacemakers. And really, when I looked at it, it's kind of like this idea of peaceful people or people who can bring peace through things. And uh, what God did, what Jesus did, was kind of brought peace between us and God, and he reconciled us through his death back to a relationship with him. So I really thought it was interesting in this that blessed are those who are peacemakers for they'll be called sons of God. So when we kind of bring reconciliation back into relationship with people and we try to create peace, we're really being children of God in that moment. We are, we're being more like God or Jesus in any sense when we're bringing peace and reconciliation. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, so much just in sons of God that I'm not going to touch. But when you look at just God relates to us as father and I mean, go back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, right? His children here on earth and the way that it was supposed to be. And there was just it was Eden, right? And they're supposed to spread Eden out over the whole planet. And when sin came in, the violence and the jealousy, even within that next generation, right? Cain and Abel, murder between brothers. Is it the strife and what? got brought into humanity. And like you said, we are most Christ-like bringing the peace because, hey, I'm not going to respond with violence. I'll put up with the suffering, you know, because I'm going to keep peace with you. I won't revert to something sinful and that's against God. I'm going to remain as a son of God. I'm going to represent him. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how clear I said all of that, but I was tracking with you. Yeah, it's it's this idea of bringing peace, but I think for me, like someone who's uh, struggled with the idea of peace for such a big part of my life, this idea of like, I always thought like having peace internally, I had to go to like this holy place and find it or, you know, we're told in culture, search for peace and you'll find it. But really what Jesus was saying is that peace is a gift. It's just as much as a gift as mercy and grace and that we need to receive peace. And once we receive peace the proper way and from the proper source, then we can offer peace to the world. And I think the world, there's so many forms of peace that they have to offer. Like people think they'll have peace in finances or peace. I guess the term that we like to use in the world is security. I'll have security when this happens. But with God, he's saying you can have peace in your life no matter what the circumstances are. And going back to that original description that we kind of read of blessed no matter what your circumstances, you can have peace. And if you can have peace, then you can help others have peace and bring them peace by being a peacemaker and helping really the idea of reconciling a relationship too. Like if you can help someone reconcile a relationship that they're having, whether it be with a family member or a friend, that's such a Christ-like attitude and attribute to have. I like everything that you're saying. <laughs> I like it a lot. I like the way that you approach all this. 
yeah, from the top to the bottom, you know, receiving the peace from God that we receive it and we have that and it can't be taken by circumstance. And that is this whole thing. Again, it's flipping everything on its head because I'm going to say something and I almost don't want to even believe what I'm saying is that your worldly circumstances that are going on around you, you can be in prison like Paul was writing Philippians and some of the other letters and have peace. You know, you can be going into a spot where you're going to get persecuted, which we're going to be coming up to in a minute, and have peace. You can be without money and security and have peace. And because the presence of God, he brings peace with him. When you're in God's presence, you're in the presence of peace. And given that he is spirit and he's spirit to spirit within you, like if you are staying in his presence, you have peace. And you can bring peace wherever you go in any circumstance, in any mm. situation. And like you're saying, to be able to go and help other people reconcile and bring peace to situations, it's not really of our own doing. Again, son of God. We're called sons of God. Like we're coming as representatives of God in the power of his spirit, bringing the peace from him. It's not a human type of peace. It's going like, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the worldly situation, you actually should be mad at that person. And do you actually should eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Like, go ahead and get the revenge. Like, it's due coming to them. Makes sense in a worldly point of view. But we're able to go, whoa, 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 whoa. That's just going to perpetuate. Let's bring in something different here. Let's bring in peace and reconciliation. And I like it. The next one then, so we'll move on as uh, we're getting ready to wrap up pretty soon. Uh, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's really interesting Again, Jesus comes out blessed, happy are you when you're persecuted. I don't think there's anyone who's happy while they're being persecuted, realistically. If I'm going to look at this from a humanistic standpoint, I don't like it when things, when I feel persecuted or in any sense, someone kind of bad-mouthing me or saying anything negative against me or maybe even attacking me of some form. No way am I happy in that circumstance. But here he's saying it again, this revolutionary idea, this changing the script of what the people were taught by the teachers of the law. And he's saying, blessed are those who are persecuted. And then here's the kicker because of righteousness. So I could be persecuted because I'm dumb and do something dumb. Like if I got a ticket for speeding, that's my fault. I can't go. Why are the cops persecuting me? I broke the law. I deserve that ticket. But if I got a ticket for being a human, then that's a ticket that I didn't deserve. Um, So that's kind of what Christ is saying here is that, it's if you're being persecuted because you did something well okay that's one thing but being persecuted because of righteousness then you can consider yourself happy and to me that's just it's crazy to think about it's a concept i can't really wrap around and it's kind of like with the sermon on the mount and even just going through the beatitudes i've heard it said that you can think about it like when did i stop nodding <laughs> right because you start off and you're like man blessed are the poor in spirit there's the kingdom of heaven those who mourn they'll be comforted and you're nodding you're like yep Yep, mm-hmm. yep. And then you get to these and you're like, wait, when did I stop nodding? All of a sudden, like, <laughs> I'm not too sure about these anymore. But yeah, and especially here that you're persecuted for righteousness sake, that you're actually performing a righteous action or standing for righteousness. I won't name names, but I know that there are people who just get really loud about being a Christian, but they're a jerk and they're not getting persecuted because they're a Christian People just don't like them because they're a jerk. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's not because you said you're a Christian. <laughs> like, well, it has nothing to do with that. Like, you're just a jerk. <laughs> but uh, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So again, there the, it's saying that they're reviling and persecuting you and saying against you for Jesus's sake, which means that when you're actually following him and you're sticking up for the marginalized and you're standing for justice and righteousness, and when you're putting yourself in the middle of a not peaceful situation and bringing peace to it, and you are standing by those truths and living it out, which is doing it for Jesus's sake, right? When they persecute you for those reasons then the blessing comes. Mm-hmm. And I had to also point out that he says that when they say evil against you, it's false. So just make sure that when people are saying evil against you, that there's not truth in it. 
<laughs> Again, if you're a jerk and they call you a jerk, is it true? If they say Chris is the terrible driver because he never uses his blinker, well, that's true. So I can't feel like I'm being persecuted against it. You're going to get a Jesus bumper sticker <laughs> randomly on the back of your car. I don't want it. going to teach you the hard lesson. It. I don't want a Jesus bumper sticker. Then I have to drive like a, a good person. Do I need to go to some of the elementary stuff about God is with you all the time in all places? <laughs> it's not the bumper sticker. He doesn't follow the sticker. <laughs> totally got us on tangent. It is a lot of the ending here, too. Is So he starts off, like you said, blessed are the poor and everyone's nodding and nodding and nodding. And then we get into the persecuted. And he says, rejoice and be glad. And I think that's where this kind of hardness of that is because people are like, wait, what? And I'm more than sure when he read all this, they're like, yeah, peacemaker. I could be a peacemaker. I could be merciful. I could be these things. Wait, I got to get persecuted? Wait, what? That head turn of, wait, what is this guy saying now? But the way he's saying it all and he wraps it up with because the same thing happened to the prophets, it was almost like, what do you guys expect is going to happen? And again, Matthew, super Jewish audience book, and Jesus is talking to Jews here, and they knew their scriptures, and they knew the prophets, and they knew what happened to the prophets. Mm -hmm. You know, like, they did get persecuted and killed and not listened to, but they were still elevated within Jewish history going, look at these great men of God. So he's kind of showing them, like, yeah, you see the great men that you revere? If you are like them, then you're like them. It mm -hmm. comes with the territory. And I think that the gladness that comes for me is that once you kind of get this kingdom lens on and you're viewing things as God views and you kind of take the red pill and you see that life is more than just what you're told about, you know, make money, work hard, like do the thing. You're just like, whoa, there's a greater reality going on. And then you see the blessings that come with doing good and with being good. Then it's like, I will be exceedingly joyful to see something evil and to stand up against evil, even if I think I'll lose, because I'm doing the absolute best thing that I'm capable of. Mm -hmm. And if consequences come my way for doing good, uh, I can be happy about that. Because I can tell you, when I cower and I'm a coward and I don't confront and I let things slide, or if I even partake in some of the evil, I don't feel happy. I get depressed and I get in my head and I feel shame and I feel guilt. And it's just like, I can see why there's a blessing of happiness because you have integrity and you're filled up and you know that you're living within the will of God and the purpose is fulfilled. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Like I can, it makes sense to me, even though it's hard, but you do need to kind of put that different perspective on. Yeah. And when looking at like summing up the, the certain, the Beatitudes part of the Sermon on the Mount, it's almost like Jesus is saying like, hey, check who you are first and see if you meet these characteristics or you have these traits. Check yourself first and then understand what's going to happen if you choose to follow me. And it's it's a cool thing that this is like his first kind of public thing, right? This is his first message out there. And it's saying, blessed are all these things, this and that, but here's everything. Are you willing to follow me? Because when you follow me, it's not going to be a smooth, easy road. But because I'm telling you blessed, no matter what circumstance you're in, you're going to have happiness in it because you're following me. And that's actually how the Sermon on the Mount ends. When you go to the end of chapter 7, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on rock. And when the rain and the wind and the storms come, it withstood it. But if you hear these words and you don't listen and you don't do them, you're a fool and the storms of life are going to come and knock you down. So the Sermon on the Mount, it's very pointed that Jesus is saying, here I am. Here's what I'm about. Will you follow me? Right. I read this today, so I'm going to read it um, so I don't botch it or mess it up. But it said, as you read the Beatitudes, we find that they represent an outlook radically different from that of the world. The world praises pride, not humility. The world endorses sin, especially if you get away with it. The world is at war with God, while God is seeking reconciliation uh, with his enemies and making them his children. We must expect to be persecuted if we are living as God wants us to live. But we must be sure that our suffering is not due to our own foolishness and disobedience. To kind of not put a bow on the Beatitudes because I don't think I could put a great bow on what Jesus already said. 
But today, in looking at it, I learned so much more about this term blessed. And then Jesus gives us circumstances. And no matter what he's saying is that your happiness shouldn't depend on your circumstances. It should depend on your relationship with me. And when you're walking close with me and you're following after me the right way, you're going to have that internal happiness, that happiness that doesn't depend on where you're at. And seriously, that's something in me personally that I would love to have is that happiness that doesn't depend on whether I'm wealthy or whatever. And, and it's so contrary to what the word world is saying out there. The world says happiness comes from this. Happiness comes from that. Find your happiness here. But God is saying there's only one source of true happiness. And when you find that one source, no matter where you're at in your life, it doesn't matter. Your happiness doesn't get taken from you. Yeah, and there's so many different scriptures that just back up everything that you said. I mean, the security that we can try and find in the world, but like scripture talks about God being our security and our fortress. He's the safe place. He's our refuge that we go to. And um, yeah, just the blessings that are there. And I think that as we're going through this, we just spent however long, you know, close to an hour probably just getting into these 9, 12 verses. And this is us talking and expounding on things. I don't want anybody to follow me. <laughs> like, I'm just trying to talk about how cool this mm-hmm. stuff is. It's like, go crack open your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 5. If you have a red letter Bible, then you'll just see red letters for like a few pages. Just get to know Jesus. Like, the point of all this is get attracted to Jesus. He's giving, like, the life that he's giving is awesome. And don't take my word for it. Like, literally go and read it for yourself, and he'll show you. Yeah. Look at it, read it, and be blessed by it, right? Be blessed by being obedient to it. I think that's a good way to end it. All right, I'm Chris. I'm Murdoch. And uh, we're your church friends. Thanks for listening.